0: Greenagers, welcome back into another episode of The Canon, the only movie podcast providing you with the most essentials movies watch list. Uh, We got another great episode today. We are rounding out our spooky season celebration, our Halloween celebration. We're actually starting it with the same duo, or we're ending it with the same duo that we started off with. We've got big Bob Cram uh, back on the show. I know he hates that introduction, (laughs) um, but Bob, happy to have you back on. We'll we'll do a little we'll do a little peek behind the curtain uh, in terms of of how uh, we came to to be this uh, this duo back at it again uh, to to end things off for for the October for the month of October for our first spooky season celebration. So I originally had some uh, some special guests who um, some folks from outside of the the world of, of Screen Age Wasteland. Who were going to be guests on this episode? We unfortunately had to reschedule. We were then planning a Fab Four episode, a you know, sort of mega celebration of the Shining with myself, Bob, Sailor Monsoon, and Ramona, who, you know, everyone loves the the two of them as well. They both had to drop out. So now that just means we get a whole lot more Bob time. So I'm I'm happy that that we're that we're doing this. Bob, how's it going?
1: It's going pretty good. We're halfway through um, spooky season and uh, what better time to, to talk about one of the best horror movies ever made?
0: One of the best horror movies ever made. I would say one of the best movies ever made. I'm going to be a bit candid here. Uh, this is maybe my favorite movie of all time. I have a very unhealthy obsession with this movie. I've seen it You know more times than I can count. I've seen uh, the documentary Room 237, which I'm sure we'll touch on throughout the episode. I've seen that more times than any sane person uh, should see that movie. I own multiple pieces of The Shining merchandise, including a t-shirt that has Great Party Isn't It Guy on. And (laughs) I always get really upset. Well, not upset, but I get a little disappointed when I wear it and people don't get the reference. I assume that everyone is as much of a sicko as I am and immediately knows that reference. A few years ago for Halloween, my girlfriend and I, we dressed up as the Grady girls and (laughs) it was a smash hit. I got to say. So I like, this is, this might be the first movie that I didn't rewatch for, uh, for the episode because I just like, I know it so inside and out. Uh, It's a movie that like truly lives with me. Uh, every day of my life. I, like I said, have an unhealthy obsession with it. So if if someone else were doing the Canon and like looking for, for guests to bring on for the episode, like I would be the guest host for this episode of the Canon. That's how much I love the shining.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. We should have got you to write the actual Canon piece.
0: I, I should have, but I, I, I'm, I haven't read uh, the piece yet, Bob. It's going to be fully it will, it'll disappoint
1: you I'm sure I'm sure I,
0: I, I'm I'm sure it's amazing what's <laughs> your are, are you do you think that you have like the same sort of unhealthy obsession with this movie that I do or is your relationship to it much more normal uh,
1: I think I think my relationship in comparison to yours is is, is much more normal I love this movie uh, it's it's one of my favorite movies but it's not it's not in my top 10, which I know is – mm. I feel like if we were in person, I would f- be in physical danger at this moment. <laughs> <laughs> but, but part of that is because I'm, I'm in Maine. I, I live in Maine. I mm-hmm. grew up here, and uh, uh, I read Carrie when I was like eight years old. You know so so i I had read the book quite a bit before the mm-hmm. the movie came out, so when I first saw it, I kept being jarred by the elements that are missing from the book, unlike Stephen King, I actually found it to be an amazing movie but but mm-hmm. I didn't have a clean experience with it,
0: so okay, that's interesting, yeah, I'm approaching it from the complete opposite end i've never read the shining i've, I've actually never read any stephen king I, I i'm a little ashamed to admit that but oh no that is interesting that so you you had read the book a few times before you'd seen the movie
1: yeah well it's weird because i i actually prefer the movie the Kubrick's movie because uh and this is probably more personal than it needs to be but mm-hmm. uh the book uh resonated with me on a, a complicated emotional level, because at, at one point my mother was in a relationship that had uncomfortable echoes of mm. the relationship in the book. And so it was, it was a difficult thing for me to, to enjoy on that yeah. level. But the, mm-hmm. the, the overt supernatural elements like the uh, in, in the book, there is a, instead of a hedge maze, there are topiary animals, that, mm-hmm. that, uh, change and move over the course of the film and then become a uh, film book and then become animated in a much more obvious way towards the end of the book. Uh, and so I miss those sorts of things, but the, the book itself, like I said, I have a complicated relationship and my, my love for the shining is uncomplicated by any of that stuff. <laughs>
0: that's good to know that the that the movie relationship isn't as complicated as the book yeah. relationship because we are here to talk about the movie the shining and not the book the shining although right. i'm sure during our conversation elements of the book will you know pop up every now and then so yeah that's i mean that's all great background so we're here we're uh less than a week away from halloween we figured that we would end the the spooky season with The Shining, or I figured because I plan out the episodes, you know, for for the show, and I wanted the last episode of the month to be about uh, what is probably my favorite horror movie, and like I said, one of my favorite movies. I feel like Bob, because you know, on our Suspiria episode, we were able to talk through a lot of, uh, you know, Halloween traditions and and things like that. We don't need to rehash that. If anyone is interested in hearing about how we celebrate uh, the holiday of Halloween, they can go back and listen to that episode and just that beginning part uh, if you you don't want to listen to uh, the two of us go on about Spiria at length. So with all that being said, I feel like there is so much to get to with The Shining that we can sort of skip our usual Banter portion of the episode, and we'll just like dive right into the movie if that's cool Sounds with good. you.
1: Yeah, absolutely, sweet.
0: sweet. So let's let's party. Let's party. Let's talk about The Shining. I really should have, uh, for that done. Great party, isn't it? But that's <laughs> fine. <laughs> uh, I, let's let let's start our conversation about this movie. Let's start it where we start most of our conversations. I I know you, you spoke about it a little bit, your, your background and relationship to the movie, but sort of walk me through what that first viewing experience was like, you know, after having read the book multiple times, you know, like how old were you when you first saw the movie? Did you immediately sort of connect to it and, um, or were you like turned off by the fact that it wasn't super close to the movie as like a Stephen King fan? What, what, like, what did that all look like?
1: So I would have been, I probably would have been about 12 or 13. And I think I saw it on HBO of all, all things. Nice. Uh, and, and, uh, I, I, I don't think I immediately knew it was related to the book. I, I think I came in before, like just after the initial credits during the, the, uh, massively awesome helicopter shots at the beginning of the movie, Yeah. Uh, so I ended up sitting and watching it and I'm I'm not sure I was supposed to be watching it. So this, this makes me think it was probably at I was supposed to be being babysat or something like that. Of course I was too old for that at 12. Uh, but I remember watching it just in horrid fascination because it's immediately scary to me. Like the music is immediately creepy mm-hmm. and scary. And it was only as it went along and I'm like, Oh, that's Danny. That's, you know that's tony that's you know uh jacket mm. that's all of these things oh it's the book and th- and then i started to pay attention but by then i was so caught up in the atmosphere and i and i will admit that this is one of the very few horror movies that ever gave me nightmares mm. uh and that that night the the woman from room 237 got up from that tub a lot in my dreams <laughs> Yeah. It was yeah, and I woke up screaming every time. So, uh that I, re- I remember being uh scared by it, which was already at that point a rare thing and confused because there were things that weren't right, quote, and then things that were added like the girls and and the hedge maze were just so incredibly awesome that yeah, I mm-hmm. I I don't think I got up that entire time. So,
0: one that woman in room 237 will terrify you and haunt your dreams probably the first time after you watch this movie like no matter what age you are whether you're 12 or you know you know 46 uh that will always be (laughs) (laughs) be terrifying i i think i i feel like everyone who has seen this movie will will agree that 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 particular scene is one that will will haunt you in a way that that a lot of other scenes in you know so many scary movies just will not there i i don't even know which jumping off point
1: well i got i got to hear what your so, first experience was
0: oh you know i actually don't remember the first time that i watched this movie it must have been in high school because i and this is something that i've repeated on you know all of the episodes uh throughout this spooky season but I, growing up, was not someone who enjoyed horror movies. I Okay, this is a story I actually I haven't told on the show yet. But to sort of give you an idea of how big of a scaredy cat I was, when I was like seven, my father took me to see uh, Casper, the friendly ghost, and I ran out of the theater maybe 20 minutes into the movie because oh I was so scared of the friendly ghost. Like I was not built for horror movies at all. And (laughs) somehow throughout the course of my life, I have been able to correct that a little bit and, you know, fall in love with movies like, like the shining. So I probably didn't watch this for the first time until I would assume high school, maybe late high school when I was going through, you know, the list of, uh, you know, before there was a canon, whatever other list there was out there of movies to watch before you die, but the first time I vividly remember watching it was in college with a group of friends, and I remember that viewing specifically because that was the first time I remembered the man in the tuxedo and the man in the the pit bull costume, yeah, uh, you know, doing you know getting freaky with each other, yeah. um, and I, I like distinctly remember that, and I was like, wow, this movie is like so insanely terrifying and amazing on so many you know cinematic levels but also like that's hilarious how can that yeah. exist within the same terrifying world as the woman in room 237 so that was like the first time i really remember watching it and falling in love with it and since then i watch this movie pretty much every october I you see. know with the exception of of this october i just i haven't gotten around to to watching it yet i will say though as many times as I've seen this movie, and as much as I love it, I watched it last Halloween while my girlfriend was away, so I watched it alone, and I slept with the lights on because I was so <laughs> afraid of the woman from Room Two Thirty Seven.
1: Yeah, so <laughs>
0: I, I have uh, to admit,
1: I watched it again today, and I I may have fast forwarded a little through that part.
0: I, I I still like don't watch that scene, and it's great because you <laughs> it, it's such a good movie, and so like I love rewatching it. But because I've seen it so many times, you like know this like the moments to close your eyes, which is great yeah. because then you can still enjoy the rest of it while <laughs> while also avoiding the the terror of like that scene. Also, the you know just while well, well on the topic of of haunting scenes and you know nightmare fuel, the scene of the of the girls you know dismembered bodies. Oh yeah, that, that's another one where it's like 50-50 on that one depending on how I'm feeling the the day that I'm watching it, I, I either have to close my eyes or I'll try to power through. Yeah. That's a has has that case. scene ever given you nightmares or is it only the woman in room 237?
1: It it hasn't given me nightmares. The only other movie I can remember giving me nightmares is actually scanners, which is weird, but, but the, the girls actually talking to him, that's the part of that scene that, that creeps me the hell out. not, Ooh. not, flashes of bodily dismemberment you know it's it's the come play with us
0: (laughs) oh my god
1: don't go there don't go danny
0: (laughs) come play with us danny i i uh i there's gonna have to be a way for me to share the photo that my girlfriend and i took of our halloween costume oh yeah um yeah it's like it's insane and we were at a Halloween party that had a hallway with like bad lighting. So someone took a picture of us on a Polaroid and we were like at the end of the hallway. So it's
1: oh, that's awesome. Oh my God. Like yeah, pretty, you got to put it in the discord under, under the post. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God. That's awesome.
0: It's a pretty creepy photo um, <laughs> for, for a few different reasons, but yeah, man, this, this movie is, you know, it's so horrifying. It's so terrifying. That it will even give someone like you, Bob, a a horror aficionado, someone who has seen you know pretty much every horror movie that there is and everything in between, and you know, it, it still I don't know if it still gives you nightmares, but it did at one point. So yeah. I think that that goes um, a long way in terms of just like how amazing this movie is. But I want to bring the conversation back a little bit. You spoke about, you know, having read the book a few times before actually watching the movie. And famously, this is like Stephen King's least favorite film adaptation of anything that he's ever written because it's so untrue to the source material. I was wondering what you think about that, where you sort of stand on that divide, Um, because I do have a bit of a take, but I I am curious about your thoughts first.
1: Okay, so, uh, you know, I... I actually am of the opinion that it's both the best adaptation of original source material and the worst adaptation of original source material ever made. Because Mm -hmm. it fails at the most absolutely basic level of capturing the tone and intent of the original novel. However, what it does is take the bones of that original novel, having emptied it out of, you know, the, the original meaning and intent and infused it with Kubrick's own vision and thereby created something new and amazing from the same basic level. So so to me, it's, it's, it manages to, to be both things. You know, a failure and a triumph at the same time.
0: I love that. I love I love that approach. My hot, not not really a hot take, but my take on it is a little less nuanced. I don't really consider this to be to live within the world of Stephen King adaptations. You know, Carrie, it, uh, The Mist, Shawshank, like all of those things. Those are. Misery those are Stephen King adaptations the the shining it just exists in a world of its own because it is you know based on everything that i've read it's so far from the actual source material and because it's kubrick like what other director can take uh can take a king story or a king novel and use it to create his own vision of a story you know, Kubrick like always worked from source materials. Like he would always work from existing novels and books and stories and things like that. But the the films that he that he or the the images that he put to film were always so different from you know the words put to put to page in, in that original source material that it's like they essentially become their own things. And I, I totally think that's what's happening here with The Shining. Like Kubrick never set out to make Stephen King's The Shining. Kubrick right. was always going to make Kubrick's version of The Shining. It it just so happens to share a name with the Stephen King book.
1: Yeah. No, I, I have I agree with that position. It's, that's that's a really good take on it. It's uh and, go ahead.
0: Oh, sorry, I was just gonna say it it allows us to to then get to to your position where we're enjoying both things. You know, we can enjoy the Stephen King version for um for everything that he's doing there and you know how amazing he is as a writer and we get to enjoy the Q- Kubrick version for everything that it is and enjoy you know all of the reasons why we love Stanley Kubrick
1: yeah that's awesome I had the the only other thing that I, other movie that i can think of that fits that same sort of level and probably there are plenty but the only one i can think of and it's because i was just listening to the beginning of it this morning was of the your podcast of it this morning was is uh john carpenter's the thing which transcends the mm. original short story so much it becomes its own thing
0: hmm. pun intended uh,
1: yeah as i was saying it i was like oh my god <laughs> why why am i doing this to myself and others <laughs> but yeah yeah uh the the that uh that Kubrick made this into something that's a Kubrick film and not a Stephen King adaptation is undeniable.
0: Yeah. I mean, just we'll pause for a second. Kubrick, I think, is the goat in terms of film directors, in, in my extremely humble opinion. So I wouldn't want to limit someone like that to making you know, a strict from-the-page adaptation you know someone like Stanley Kubrick like needs to they need to uh they need to expand their wings and you know do whatever whatever creative process comes to them or whatever i agree so <laughs> so <laughs> with all that being said all of that that awkward conversation being out of the way i know one of the questions that you had about this movie and this sort of plays into the uh you know how the Shining plays out in, in book form versus how it plays out in in the movie is the fact that there's a lot of supernatural elements at play in the movie that I understand aren't necessarily there in the book. And you pose the question: Would this movie be better or worse without those supernatural elements? I don't know if you had an answer to that or if that was just you know a topic that you were interested in exploring a little bit more. I
1: kind of. Was wondering what the, what the group consensus would be about that because I, I've seen arguments both ways and and I I think I'm leaning towards if you take out the obvious supernatural elements then it's a pure film it kind of works more with the the st- archetypes that he's playing with there. Mm-hmm. when you add in the supernatural elements it kind of takes away a little bit to me the agency of the characters and so the horror mm-hmm. becomes external and external horror to me is always somewhat more comfortable because it means we're not responsible for our own actions so oh, interesting in, in in that respect i i kind of would like for like all, you can still have all of the visions and the things that people see and feel, but once you've got Grady opening the the, uh, oh, the door to the door. pantry, yeah, the, yeah, then 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 you're into okay. Well, it's it's obviously a supernatural effect, and it's not just Jack going crazy; it's Jack being driven crazy. So mm. I know it's, I'm just rambling on about it because yeah. I'm not that clear on my own feelings about it.
0: That, that is an interesting question. I, I One that I've never really considered. So I appreciate you bringing it up. What are some of those other just like outright supernatural elements that you think are in play that maybe in a way could be taken away from, you know, the overall story of, of Jack and what, and what he ends up doing in this movie.
1: Right. Well, that's, I mean, that's the, the one that you can't explain away is that opening of the door. Mm -hmm. Everything else could be kind of just people going crazy. Once, once um, Wendy starts seeing things, that's also kind of problematic. It's Mm -hmm. also while there are some of the, the weirdest scenes are the ones that she sees like the, the whole bit with the guy in the dog costume and the, guy in the tuxedo and, and your favorite line. Uh, great party, isn't it? Great party, isn't it? You can, you could say that it's a shared delusion that all three of them eventually start to experience. But that, mm-hmm. that's also a little bit to me that the, when Wendy starts seeing is like, okay, so is the, is the hotel really kicking out all the stops now? Yeah. So but but I guess before that. Yeah, go ahead it could all be you know a something going on with with uh, Jack and with with Danny in their own you know internal experiences of being isolated and having their own issues so
0: do you think it could be that they are all shining in their own way
1: see this this jumps forward to <laughs> my this is my hot take is that that uh, Jack actually has a touch of the shine as well, which is which mm-hmm. is why he experiences things so uh, so deeply. That the hotel is actually interacting with him as much, if not more, so than Danny. And that mm. if you can have if you can have a shine that lets you communicate with a cook in Florida, why can't you have a shine that, is, especially in a Stephen King story? that lets mm-hmm. you move things with your mind. So mm. to me, that's if, if Jack has the, a touch of the shine, then he's the one that opens the door for himself because he's the one that's animating ah. all of these aspects of the hotel.
0: I I love the, the phrasing, a touch of the shine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's beautiful. You got to trademark that.
1: <laughs> I got a touch of the shine. You should probably yeah. take something for that. Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just a just a touch of the shine um yeah and then i guess it could be argued that at the end wendy is also experiencing a uh, a touch of the shine right so i i really do like that question of of whether or not you know how much the the supernatural element really you know takes away from or enhances the story i i just i've always known it as a ghost story so i've never thought of it as like being able to not be that. But I feel like your question, you know, in particular with, with regards to, to the characters and like how they act and, and their, their agency and all of this, I guess we can talk about that a little bit. So like, what do you, what do you make of these three characters? And I guess we'll, we'll start with Jack in particular, just like, how do you see him as a character and how do you read his like overall character arc?
1: And I, I'm gonna apologize now for constantly going back to the the book in my comparisons to this.
0: Oh no, please! But don't. But that's my
1: initial experience, so it's always there when I'm watching the movie as well. in In King's book, Jack is a, uh, a, a essentially a good man. Who, in fact, in the in the book, it's he and Danny who have the special relationship. They're they're closer than Wendy and Danny are. But he's a good man who has a flaw that the hotel exploits and mm. kind of pushes him into – It's like a man who descends into evil
0: mm-hmm. with the
1: pressure of the, – the outside pressure of the hotel the entire time. Whereas I feel like uh, in in the movie, Jack starts out as a, a man that's already got evil inside him. And, and part of that is Nicholson's – Jack Nicholson, you know, he, he, you can't look (laughs) at him. He raises an eyebrow and you're like, that guy can't be trusted. I'm sorry.
0: He saw it on the television. (laughs) He saw it on the
1: television. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So to me, it's, it's, uh, you know, he, he starts off on on the bad side of things and, and the isolation and the hotel kind of slide him deeper into it. Mm -hmm. Um, And jack nicholson's amazing in this but he he doesn't slide into evil so much as jump off the side of the cliff into it (laughs) i (laughs) mean i had forgotten how early on in the film that scene with wendy and danny playing outside and then they cut to jack on the inside looking out the window and he's just got that Kubrick stare
0: oh my god
1: and i'm like holy crap that's like 40 minutes into the film, 35, 40 minutes into the film, and he's already yeah. looking like he's going to kill somebody.
0: Yeah. That's, uh, I mean, the Kubrick stare. That's just. Yeah. yeah. And I keep saying
1: Kubrick because I've said that that way forever. I keep.
0: I don't know the actual, the the correct uh, pronunciation of it. I, I would err on your side. Kubrick.
1: I would err on don't know. Kubrick just because I mispronounce so many things in the in the Suspiria thread that I can't uh, podcast. So. I,
0: I'm notorious uh, mis- mispronunciator. So the, we're the blind yeah. leading the blind.
1: <laughs> okay. Well, at least we're in the dark together.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Neither of us has a touch of the shine.
1: No, not at all.
0: <laughs> no, No shining here. Yeah, man. He is. It's such an interesting performance because it's so outrageously over the top but it kind of needs to be for this movie and I think it's interesting when you think about Kubrick as a filmmaker especially like his relationship to actors and how he viewed actors and how he used actors and for those unfamiliar Kubrick was like notorious for making actors do like a thousand takes of everything And having them play it 8 million different ways to the point where a lot of his, a lot of performances in his films sort of read as unnatural in the way that they're performed. And a lot of that is just because he like breaks actors down to a point where they like don't know how to act anymore. And a lot of that is because he viewed actors as like the same as an editing technique or uh you know certain uh props or or things that are you know within the frame they were just another tool for him to tell his story like it you never watch a stanley kubrick movie and think like oh this is like a vehicle for x actor it is oh like you always know who is in charge so it's like interesting that it seems like Jack Nicholson is like maybe the only actor to ever have like fun with doing a Kubrick performance, (laughs) which is like really weird. I don't know if you, if you get that same sort of vibe from, from this performance as well.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, looking at the little bits in Kubrick's daughter did a documentary on the making of this film and her home movies of the, in, in the background, Jack Nicholson's always like so relaxed and just kind of, you know, ready to go. And, and uh, yeah, Shelley Duvall did not have the the same treatment
0: yeah. <laughs> over well, the course okay. of the film. So. S- since we're here, I feel like we have to talk about how that, you know, is juxtaposed against how Jack Nicholson's performance and mood on set is juxtaposed with Shelley Duvall's experience on set. Because it's pretty... I think it, it's well known it's out there, but it's, it's worth talking about.
1: Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's relatively fresh to to my mind. Like I hadn't read much about it until I was doing the, the Canon post. Mm-hmm. So it's a little raw for me as far as it feels, you know, the, I, I kind of want to term it abuse because, oh, yeah. Yeah. Cause she was, you know, isolated from other members of, of the cast, they were specifically told not to interact with her in a positive manner. And like that, you were talking about the multiple takes, the, the Guinness world record, right. Was for that scene towards, towards the third, the later third of the film where she finds Jack's uh, manuscript and, and they have the confrontation. He took like 127 takes or something like that. Jesus. And she had a nervous breakdown after that. <laughs>
0: I, yeah, so I can't it, imagine.
1: Yeah, and and the the thing that kills me is that of course that was the first year of the Razzies, and she was mm. the first recipient of the Razzie for for a lead actress, and I I feel terrible because her she's not really acting in some of those scenes. She's we're watching a woman have a nervous breakdown on screen, and it works. For the character and for what they're they're going for, but it it is painful to watch at times because it feels so so realistic,
0: even yeah. if, as
1: it's enhanced and over the top.
0: That one that, that's awful that she won a Razzie because she her performances is, is wonderful in this and it it sucks and it like hurts me so much to know that it is the product of abuse and just like abusive treatment of her on set i think another one of the famous stories is that her yelling jack's name in when she's in the bathroom and and jack is is outside going at it with the axe that is real and true genuine terror on her face and in her voice that you're hearing like oh, that man that it must've been after she had the nervous breakdown uh, from filming the previous scene, but she was like an absolutely like lost person at that point. And, you know, yeah, it, it produced one of the most iconic moments in cinema history, but like at what cost, you know, it's like, we're going to sit here and, and gush for this movie for, you know, another hour or so. But it is still like really sad to know that um, that she had that experience and it sort of like, it drove her away from acting um, yeah. for, for like free until up until recently she was, she wasn't acting.
1: Yeah, that's true. And she, I mean, she has gone on the record to say that she understands that this was an effect that he was trying to get out of her and that, that uh, she doesn't blame him for, being the kind of director that he is. Do you want to put that out there? But it doesn't, to me, that doesn't justify the kind of experience that, that she had on this film.
0: Um, How do we awkwardly transition from this, uh, from the, from this awful, from this awful topic? Um, Let's talk about the Overlook Hotel. Let's talk about the hotel itself, because I think in a movie that is full of extremely interesting layers and, and depth and thematic questions and, and elements. I think the most interesting part is is the idea of isolation and how that drives people insane. But I also think that the geography of the Overlook Hotel, which is something that has been like broken down and diagrammed and video essayed to death is like the most interesting part of this movie, because even if you don't realize that it's happening, it has such a great effect on how you understand the movie. So I think the first thing with that, and I think this is going to be my first reference to room 237, which if you haven't seen it is a documentary about just people coming up with the most insane theories ever about what the shining is about. So if you dig the shining, and you want to be an insane person about it watch room 237 but I just watch it. <laughs> it, it for the first time oh really yeah it's wild it is <laughs> it's wild and i think i think the reason why i come away with a lot of movies with like insane readings is because of that that documentary <laughs> <laughs> i think it had like a really negative effect on how i watch movies we're now like I, you know, I'm talking to friends or I'm on the show and I'm just like, what if this is what the movie is about? And everyone's like, you're crazy. Um, (laughs) But the thing I want to reference from, from room 237 is the impossible window. Yes. And it's like one of the first scenes and it immediately sets up that like things are not okay here. So Bob, why don't you quickly walk us through uh, what the impossible window is?
1: Okay. Uh, so again, having only watched that documentary once, you're probably better at describing this, but you'll, you'll correct me if I get things wrong. So when Jack goes to the hotel, I mean, it shows up a couple of times, but Jack goes to the hotel for the first time for the interview He's directed down a hallway and into a room. It takes a left towards the the office and a right. But if you are looking directly down the hallway that he first starts down, it goes past this office and like there, there's an elevator or a, another area off to the left. So the the hotel kind of continues, but when he walks mm-hmm. into the office, there's a window in the office that looks outside and it should be looking like on a hallway. Or something. Yeah. It's kind of in the middle of the hotel almost. Yeah. So it's an impossible window, and uh, and like you said, it's not something that I noticed when I have watched the movie before. But it's I think it does unsettle you. That that office has always been unsettling to me for some stupid reason. Now I think I know why.
0: Yeah. Because <laughs> so you're like, how does this work? Um, hey, wait a minute. Yeah, that's that's not right. So yeah, so like in that early scene you're immediately you're immediately given a geography that just doesn't work it doesn't make any sense but everything about the conversation seems like nice and normal uh during his interview process you know there's there's like not much about it that would suggest that there's some weird stuff happening oh besides the fact that the guy interviewing him mentions that uh a couple years back some dude went crazy and killed his whole family um (laughs) besides that it's like Yeah, it's like pretty normal. Um, (laughs) uh, And I like the
1: documentary pointing out that there's a little miniature axe in his pen
0: container. I did not Uh, notice that. Yeah, yeah. there's that documentary is is absolutely wild, and it will it for 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 some like me, it might break your brain. Um, But it will also be pretty interesting to just hear about how people think about. Think about movies. So the other thing with the geography of of the hotel is Danny's tricycle rides through the hallways, which I think it's also mentioned in in room two thirty seven. But essentially, if you follow the path, uh, that he there are two tricycle tricycle scenes. There's one where he's on the first floor, and then there's another where he's on the second floor. And if you follow the paths of the two trips that he takes they essentially don't line up to be in the same hotel. Yeah. And then so then the last thing with that which is I think a a bit more obvious to, you know, just your standard viewer is that scene where the scene right before Jack ends up going into room 237 when Danny goes in there and we don't see what happens. He's playing with his truck right in the hallway. And a tennis ball rolls up and when the tennis ball rolls up, there's like one, uh, one like low angle shot of Danny playing on the ground and the carpet is arranged one way. And then there's another shot from like above of Danny standing up to look at the tennis ball. And it's like a completely different carpet arrangement. Uh, And you like, it's like, I mean, it's not that subtle, but it, again, it's just like everything in this hotel is like freaky and off and nothing makes sense here.
1: Right, right. And and if it was another director, you'd be like, oh, well, they just screwed up continuity. But there's no way on earth that Kubrick is going to screw that up. So it's got to be on purpose. Now you, that's, that's where you start down the rabbit hole. So what did he mean by that? Why
0: did he do it <laughs> that way?
1: you know is this sure, the hotel yeah, starting to
0: shine you know yeah right
1: <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> yeah it's um it's totally freaky and it's again like one thing that we talk about a lot here on the canon is just how there there are all these different sorts of tools and you know visual tricks that movies do to uh convey different whether it be narrative beats or just like convey different emotions or get different emotions out of viewers. And a lot of times it's like really simple stuff. uh, But once you pick up on it, you're like, holy shit, like movies are crazy. Um, And I think a lot of that is happening in this movie, specifically with the geography of the Overlook Hotel. But the other thing I mentioned that is like a big theme of this movie is isolation. And like how cabin fever comes, comes from that. So Bob, I was just wondering what your, your thoughts were on, on that whole theme of, of isolation and sort of like how it plays out for, for all three of the the main characters.
1: Right. And this is, this calls back to, for me to, uh, to the thing again, because that's all also a movie about isolation, not just isolation where you're a group of men in the middle of, uh the Antarctic or the Arctic and unable to contact human beings, but also the awareness that you're completely alone inside your own head. you can never be sure
0: mm.
1: especially in that movie what another person yeah. is thinking or if they're another person. And in this movie, I feel like the the isolation is a is a whole is a part of everything being an aspect of a maze you know the the hotel, has a maze and the hotel is a maze
0: mm-hmm. and
1: in the sense of each of these characters over the the course of the film, they start becoming more and more isolated from each other mm-hmm. and their relationship becomes the maze because you can almost feel Wendy like being unable to figure out how to navigate her relationship with Jack anymore she's getting further and further from who he is and what he is. And she's lost. Mm -hmm. And Danny, you know, they have that conversation where he, he sits on Jack's lap and they, they talk about, you know, do you want to kill? Do you want to kill us? Do you, you, don't you like the hotel Danny? This, that sort of thing. That's also Danny trying to figure out where am I in this Mm -hmm. relationship? So the hotel isolates them, physically, but it it also kind of starts to isolate them from each other over the course of the film.
0: I love that reading. Yeah. I've never, I've never read it that way, but it makes so much sense that they're, you know, navigating the maze of their relationships to each other, you know, especially as I guess as all three of them continue to go down their rabbit holes of, uh, you know, whatever sort of, craze their they're experiencing while right. while in this in this hotel There there're there, there far too many other readings that we can you know dive into with this movie and if anyone is interested in those again check out room 237 you will you will be made aware of more readings than you could ever think are possible for one single yeah. film can I, can um, I just
1: can I mention my favorite from that film oh
0: Yes, please.
1: It's the the whole idea that Kubrick was responsible for faking the moon landing.
0: I, I had a feeling that was going to be the one that you were going to pick. Oh, my
1: God. I love that so much. I, I yeah, just be- love that whole concept. <laughs> I mean, don't believe it for a second, but I just love following the intricacies of that man's yeah. – uh, all of the clues that he gives us. <laughs>
0: because Danny the- is wearing an Apollo 11 sh- like sweater. Yeah, in the scene before yep. he goes to room 237. And
1: 237 is like, oh, the moon is 237,000 miles from the earth. And that's <laughs> that's why it was changed and stuff. I actually
0: Is there so, no room 237 reading, in the book?
1: No, it's 217 in the book. <laughs> it's and the the rumor or the the accepted reading of it is is that the hotel that this is based on actually has a room 217, and they were afraid that people would, um, wouldn't rent the room if they mm-hmm. saw the movie, and it was room 217. So, so they changed it to 237 for the film. That's, that's the, the rumor why they did it. But of course, room 217 is like the most requested room mm-hmm. in, in the, uh, the hotel that the film is based on. And it's, there's a, there's a much easier way, I guess, uh, Two three seven is the code that you have to input into the computer to start nuclear war in uh, in uh, Doctor Strangelove. So it may just have been Kubrick going, "Yeah, let's let's put a yeah. little nod to the that movie in here." So.
0: <laughs> that is that is a great little peek into just some of the the wild theories that you'll oh uh, that you'll hear in in the, the documentary room 237 <laughs> and it even it feels weird to call it a documentary it's really just a series of people just you know talking out of maybe not out of their asses but just saying like the most unhinged things um, yeah
1: and they just let him they, go that's the best yeah. part he does do he doesn't do any editorializing about their content at all they
0: just no go. Yeah. there's no contextualizing anything that they're saying it's just go just speak Go you know,
1: off, and it freaks me out a little. And we can stop talking about this, but it freaks me out a little because the they use images from films that have nothing to do with The Shining, and like one of them is a, a classic Italian gore film called The uh, Demons. And I'm like, oh, this is one of my favorite. Why are they including scenes from Demons in this?
0: It, <laughs> oh well, it's all connected, man. It's all connected. Okay, yeah. I need, um, I
1: need a documentary about the making of this documentary.
0: I'll probably cut this out, but I also love the theory that Kubrick like knew about the like heads of state having you know giant sex parties, and uh, <laughs> after making Eyes Wide Shut, they conspired to kill him because it was exposing too much of you know their their underground doings or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> you know, just oh my god, absolutely insane stuff. I want to use one of those theories to 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 jump off into uh what I think is an interesting part of the movie a really interesting character and you know something that's like kind of playful that that Kubrick is doing I I don't think he gets enough credit for being like a playful film director or someone who has a sense of humor but there's a reading within room 237 that the shining is about the genocide of native americans um in this country and like the use of their land or whatever and there's a shot where a character who we haven't mentioned yet but Dick Halloran who is the chef of the overlook hotel who also has the shining and he is the character who explains to young Danny what his shining is and you know sort of what it means so there's a scene where that character is in line with a like can of soup that has a native American man on the cover of it. And, and Dick and can of soup are facing the same way. And that means that Kubrick is aligning the genocide of native Americans with the struggle of the black American within the United States. Again, absolutely wild reading of this movie. Yeah, absolutely wild. (laughs) There are also readings that Dick Halloran uh, serves as uh, what some people would call a sacrificial Negro within the horror genre where you have one black character and they're really just there to die on behalf of some white characters. That reading comes from Dick being the first person who we see killed on screen. But I think that Stanley Kubrick is doing a bit of trolling with us in having (laughs) dick halloran fly across country from florida to colorado to then take a five hour to to then drive five hours from denver to the overlook hotel to like 30 seconds after he walks into the hotel immediately taking an axe to the chest (laughs) and like kubrick goes through dick's journey in like excruciating details. Oh, yeah. Like you see him on every single step of the journey and we're like, Oh yeah, this dude's going to save the day. And then as soon as he gets there, just boom, done. Yeah. Like, yeah. I think that's Kubrick just like, just messing with the audience. He's just fucking. Well, and it's,
1: it's a, it's a double F you because if you've read the book, Dick lives. Oh, <laughs> So that was, that was my biggest issue with, with it the first time that I remember watching it was I was like, not only I liked Dick in the book, but I loved Scatman Crothers. So I really liked Dick Halloran in the movie. And then when that the rug gets pulled out from under you with that axe, I was personally hurt. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's like, no, Dick lives. What are you doing? Uh, yeah. So that that was, a, and you know, I appreciated it very much when I thought about it afterwards. That it really does pull the rug out from underneath the, the, the audience there. Like nobody's coming to save these people.
0: Yeah. Like they are totally, you know, they're, they're in it for, for themselves Um, Hmm. sort of something that we talked about last week with the thing is that having them in Antarctica, you know, there's no room for uh, a deus machina. uh, What is it? Deus machina, right. To just Uh, like come in and see I saying that (laughs) right.
1: I, you're asking the wrong person. I always say deus ex machina, but I have no idea.
0: But that thing, right where yeah. it just comes in and and saves the day and you know, it's a convenient sort of resolution to uh to whatever tension is building throughout the movie that feels inescapable for our main characters and you know, so th- that's not available in the thing because of where they are. And then with Dick coming and immediately getting axed, it eliminates that eliminates something like that happening in, in this movie too.
1: Yeah. It's it's a good trick.
0: It's a great trick. I guess before we're sort of we've talked around the ending of the movie, and I feel like there's a lot that's happening in the late second act and in the third act of the movie. Is is there anything, you know, from sort of earlier parts of the movie that that sticks out to you that you want to you know, talk through or, or touch on a little bit.
1: Uh, the only thing I can think of is is uh, one of those annoying little factoids. In in that uh, when I forget the name of the character, the guy who who hires him, the anyway, the manager of the hotel, he tells him, you know, that the hotel is open between May first and October thirtieth. So the day mm. that the Torrances show up to move in is. Halloween. Spooky. Yeah. So that's just something It was like one of those little things that I had never really occurred to me because it's not expressly mentioned that it's Halloween, but it has to be Halloween.
0: So. Yeah. That's really interesting. Well, I think sort of with that, and I think this goes into the movies um, aim to just like disorient you is the title cards that are used for like the passage of time are so psychotic and like don't make (laughs) any sort of logical sense, it'll be like Tuesday and then 8 PM, October, like it's just like all, all, all over the place. So you really like, in addition to not having a sense of like where you are spatially, you also have no idea like when you, when you are and when you're, when you're viewing things which just like adds to to the whole vibe of of the movie being just we're going to just keep you off center enough to to make you feel uneasy.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And the and the thing is, you know, people get tend to get bogged down in the details because uh Kubrick is such an intentional director and is notorious for for doing things like, you know, rearranging minor elements in the background of a shot to get it to look mm-hmm. exactly the way he wants it. People tend to want to apply meaning to everything that happens, but there's a quote, and I wish I could remember where I read it, but he, when he was talking about doing horror and supernatural, he said, if you're going to do supernatural, the supernatural should defy explanation. Hmm. So in the same sense that H.P. Lovecraft talks about the uncanny in su- in his essay on supernatural horror in literature, it's things should not make sense. Things that make sense remove fear. So everything that that Kubrick does that doesn't make sense—the layout of the, the the film, the title cards—these things contribute to that sense of unease and and the uncanny. And I think he's doing that on purpose. It's not the details that he puts in that are meaningful. It's the random randomness of those things and the lack of explanation for those things Yeah, that, that is the purpose.
0: That's such a great shout. I love that. I don't know if this is from Room 237 or another Kubrick documentary that I've watched along the way, but I remember him saying that he sees The Shining as a hopeful movie because If there's any thought of, you know, afterlife, which I guess a ghost story is, then he's like, that means that there's some hope for, for once we're all done here. Right. It's like, that's a weird way to look at, you know, at, at slaughtering your kids in in the hallway, but (laughs) whatever, man.
1: Yep. Yeah. No, that's, that's awesome.
0: Speaking of, of him being like a perfectionist, the, there is like such a, a specificity to the layout of those, of those, uh, those like quick shots of the dismembered bodies, that it's like almost too neat. Like the way that like the bodies and the axe and like the the knocked over chair, like all line up. It's like yeah. too neat for it to be like a gruesome murder scene, which makes it even more unsettling.
1: Yeah, it almost look like it looks like a staged photograph.
0: Yeah. Either way, it gives me nightmares. I'm, yeah, <laughs> like I'm like freaking out in in my house right now. Like while we I'm record this.
1: So sorry, it's it's nighttime too. So
0: yeah, it's like the, there's nothing for me to be you know afraid about. My but I'm getting freaked out just talking about this movie. But I love it so much that I I, I can't stop watching it, no matter how much <laughs> it freaks me out. So good. So yeah, I feel like we've we've hit a lot of the major points of this movie. There are obviously so many other things that we can dive a bit deeper into with it. Do you want to talk a little bit about the ending specifically, or how do we feel about that?
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, this is your rodeo, man, and your favorite film. So I want to talk about what you want to talk about.
0: I, I have I have no set plans. I think we're just sort of going with the flow right now. But yeah, I mean, the uh, I think- I think Wendy's run through the hotel is one of the most fun sequences in movie history. I think we've talked about it. You know, you have the the dude in the tuxedo and the dude in the bear costume. You have yeah. Great Party, isn't it, guy? You've got the famous blood or wine from the elevator scene. You've got Danny writing red rum on the door and, you know, the role that the mirror plays within the movie you've got Wendy hiding in the bathroom and I think one of the best shots in movie history is Jack outside swinging the hammer or swinging the axe rather at the door and there's like the way that the camera is like somehow like only following the axe head Yeah, is one of the most remarkable things I've ever seen I have no idea how it was done
1: but- no, me either. Because it in it it smoothly follows the axe and smoothly stops when the axe hits the door. Yeah, it's it's amazing.
0: It's a great it's shot. Like it, it's kind of eerie. I have no idea how that was set up or like what kind of <laughs> what what kind of camera equipment that they were using for that shot. But it is like one of the most outrageous things I've ever seen.
1: Yeah, it's fantastic.
0: I guess speaking of great camera shots, I'm going to jump back a little bit, but the The steady cam, which was originally invented for the Rocky training montage, but is used very heavily here for the Danny tricycling scenes. Do you have anything on that or just like how it's used in this movie
1: no other than uh and I'm going to completely forget his name, but the guy who invented this steady cam was was brought on to help uh use the camera the way that Kubrick wanted it used and ended up staying on to help, you know, develop and, and shoot some of those shots. So like a lot of the shots in, uh, in the maze are by the guy who invented the steadicam. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah. So, uh, and he, uh, he does a documentary, not a documentary, he does a commentary track on, on at least one of the Blu-ray releases and it's, it's well worth listening to, uh, yeah. for, for some of those, behind the scenes notes. Uh, and yeah, I, my favorite thing about the Steadicam and, and just the way that he uses the camera throughout the entire film is that we're trained by, by uh movie language that if a camera is moving, it's usually someone's perspective, you know, it, that's mm-hmm. kind of dulled down a little bit over se- since this movie came out, but especially mm-hmm. at, at at this time, if the camera was moving, it was somebody's perspective. So when the camera moves as much as it does in this, you start to question who or what is that perspective. And you're left with the only only thing it can be, it's the hotel, Mm -hmm. right? So it feels like the hotel is a character that's observing all these people and following them and eventually chasing them as well yeah so I, I love that i don't know if that was intentional but that's the way it feels like to me
0: i love i love that reading i've always read it as and i i can't remember you, you you might be able to tell me since you watched the movie today for for this but i can't remember if it's the the second time that danny's riding the tricycle through the hotel that the uh that the twins show up or is that the first time
1: uh, it's. I think it's actually the third time, but I can't remember. <laughs> I just watched it too.
0: Yeah, is it the because second time? I can't remember. No, I the second
1: I, time is he stops at the at room two three seven, and then uh, moves on. So I think it is the third yeah. time
0: that he sees the girls, which is really interesting. And I don't know if it's just from like having absorbed this movie through it, just like being a part of the zeitgeist, but. I feel like when the camera is following him, it just feels like there is something lurking around every corner. And, you know, when those first two times, because there is nothing, even though you're sort of waiting for it, and it, it might just be like the music that's being used at that time too, that sort of suggests that like something eerie is about to happen. And then you just have these extended takes of him riding around through through the, uh, through the hotel. Oh no, you don't even have music because, uh, yeah. In the, the one where he's riding downstairs, there's that great sound design where he's on the carpet and it gets quiet. And then he's on the wood and it gets loud again. And yeah. you're like, why is that so creepy? It's just, yeah. it's just wheels on surfaces. Um, and, well,
1: part of, part of what makes it creepy. I'm sorry to interrupt.
0: No, please go.
1: Part of what it makes it, makes it creepy is that the, the camera is just, like a beat behind Danny. So we know it's mm-hmm. not his perspective because otherwise we would be seeing exactly where he's going every time. Mm-hmm. So he turns a corner and the camera turns the corner just a beat later, yeah. which when you finally see the girls, that's the payoff for that particular moment because Danny sees the girls and we see his reaction. And then mm-hmm. the camera turns the corner and we see the girls. Yeah. <laughs> to me, that's genius. What a genius use of the camera there.
0: Yeah, it's, it's absolutely bonkers because you, at first you're expecting, okay, every time he turns a corner, there's going to be something scary, but then we're trained. Okay. There's really nothing scary around any of these corners. So when Danny's riding, nothing's going to happen. And then boom, here are the girls. And you're like, wait, what? (laughs) Uh, It's just, it's like, it's a completely, it's really such an amazing piece of filmmaking that that is like manipulating you as a viewer in ways that is like really hard to understand. And like, if you're someone who, I think I've said this before on this show, but like my girlfriend, we, when we watch movies together, because she's not watching through like a critical lens or anything like that, she really just like gives herself over to movies and like allows them to take her on whatever journey they're, they're taking you on. And I feel like no matter how much of a, you know, critical eye person or analytical movie watcher you want to be like, this is a movie that like grabs you and you have to give yourself over to what this movie is doing to you and how it's like manipulating you as a viewer. And I just think that it's, it's really such a, such a special thing to, to experience.
1: Yeah, I agree. It is, it is something it's when, when you know how the cake is baked and you don't care because the cake is so delicious it's it's a it's a magical thing, especially when you've you've had education in in how how this stuff works so uh, yeah and this is one of those films that does that absolutely
0: such a beautiful thing it's weird to say that this movie about you know dipping into insanity and haunted hotels uh is a beautiful thing but it it really is it's <laughs> Yeah, Uh, it's wild. Yeah. I, uh, Bob, I I don't think I, I think if I bring up too many other topics, we'll, (laughs) we'll end up being here all, all, all day. So, uh, I think I'm, I'm good to leave it at that. I don't know if you have anything else that you, uh, that you want to bring up about the shining.
1: No, other than I, I kind of want to slightly defend the fact that it's not in my top 10. And that, as much as I love this movie, it has a distance for me. In mm-hmm. that, Kubrick's kind of a a, a rational filmmaker. I I, mm-hmm. I don't even know if that's the term that I want to use. He's an intellectual filmmaker. Mm-hmm. You know, he knows what he's trying to accomplish. He uses his tools to his best ability. He's a craftsman at it. But I don't feel an emotional connection. To either the film or the characters, the way that I would, you know, as as much of an absolute mess as Suspiria is, I I feel an emotional connection to that movie. There's a there's this there's emotion to it where I feel kind of a distance in all of Kubrick's films, really. But but this uh, this film in particular that deals so much with human emotion but i i have a hard time feeling that emotion other than a kind of dismay and fear (laughs) so he accomplishes giving me those feelings for Mm -hmm. sure but but i do feel like i'm slightly distanced from from the characters
0: that's that's very fair i think i i yeah i i totally get where where you're coming from you know that's I think that's a big part of why we watch movies and if you're not able to to feel that or like feel with a movie that you're that you're watching it's it's not going to it's yeah, not gonna you can you can you admire
1: and respect mm-hmm. and enjoy a film
0: yeah but you really need to feel it you know yeah. for it to be uh especially a top 10 right I would say the sorry the last two things that I will say about this movie one, uh the best smash cut ever when they're running through the maze and Jack is, you know, reduced to like a caveman like scream. He can't even yell Danny's name anymore. And then it just boom cuts to him frozen. Again, Kubrick is like kind of funny. <laughs> yeah. Uh it, it's, <laughs> it's 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 hilarious. And I think it I think it cuts directly from that shot of Jack's face to One of the best like final shots of any movie, the, the 4th of July ball, uh, 1921 or 24 with Jack in the middle, you know, you've, you've always been the caretaker and, uh, yeah, it's long,
1: slow zoom. Yeah.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Then the credits roll and it's like, yep. F you (laughs) (laughs) in a lot of ways, this movie is Kubrick just throwing double middle fingers up. Like, yep. To yep. the audience oh, in the most loving did, way possible.
1: Yes. Yep. But he is definitely doing his own thing with this. You know, he's like, yeah, I'm yeah. going to make a horror movie, but I'm doing it on my terms.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yep.
1: So you mentioned, I don't know. I don't remember if you mentioned it, but after we started recording or before, but you, you did mention Dr. Sleep. And I didn't know if you wanted to talk about that a little bit or not.
0: Yeah. Let's, before we get into recommendations, which we obviously will do, so we've been talking a lot this month about horror movies and how the genre is, is more inclined to have remakes than other genres. This movie does not have a remake. Uh, I do want to ask the question if this is an unremakeable movie. So we'll do that before <laughs> we get into Dr. Sleep. Do, do you think that there could be a remake of the shining?
1: No, I don't. I, I, I honestly think it, it, the shining as as a Kubrick movie, can never be remade. Can somebody do another adaptation of the The Shining, the book? Sure, and they have. And I, you know, I understand that Sailor can defend it quite well, but I, I cannot. Uh, <laughs> but I don't. If you tried to do the same thing, if you tried to remake The Shining, the the Kubrick film, you are destined to fail. It cannot be. It, it cannot be remade. In that way.
0: No. So- I don't I yeah, I, I I agree. You could you there could be another adaptation of the book. Unfortunately, like you said, Sailor's not here to defend the miniseries. But from from what I've heard, so I've seen Doctor Sleep. I like it. I've heard from people who enjoy Stephen King's writing that Dr. Sleep does a good job of sort of bridging the gap between the movie version of the shining that we get from kubrick and stephen king's sort of intentions with the book that he wrote and obviously the 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 sequel which i desperately want to call dr strange and (laughs) i will make that mistake until the end of time but baba um what are what are your thoughts on on dr sleep if you if you have seen it and sort of where it fits into to all this
1: yeah, I actually just saw it for the first time this year. I avoided it because I actually didn't like the book too much. I thought it was mm. a pretty banal sequel to mm-hmm. to one of his best novels, even if I have a complicated relationship with it. So as much as I like the director of Dr. Sleep, whose name escapes me.
0: Is it Flanagan? Is it that yes, Flanagan guy? Mike Flanagan. That everyone loves. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yes. So... Uh, I, I've I've watched a bunch of his films uh, and I enjoy them, but I just I didn't expect much from it. And then people were telling me that I that I needed to see it, and that like you said, it bridged. It kind of does a good job of bridging the Kubrick film and and mm-hmm. uh, King's expectations from his novel. And and I thought it was a much better movie than the novel would have suggested. And That's I good. do think it does a, a fairly decent job because I mean one of the big things in the novel is that Jack redeems himself in the book in the book Danny is able to recall him from the grip of the hotel mm. and the the boiler in the novel is a constant it's it's Chekhov's boiler you know it's it's gonna blow mm-hmm. up at some point you just know it but it, it hasn't been uh it it just kind of repeats over the the course of the novel and then Jack manages to destroy the hotel in in the novel, so that's how he redeems himself of the horror that he puts his family through. But uh, so making Danny the stand-in for that in the in Doctor Sleep was actually a cool little tie-in, and it was kind of fun to see the ghosts and the hotel from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. It doesn't replace or even really enhance Kubrick's film, which I think just still stands alone, but it was a fun addition that uh, I enjoyed.
0: Nice. I feel like it's hard. It's a hard movie for me to talk about because I haven't read Doctor Sleep. I haven't read The Shining. My only knowledge and connection to this world is through Kubrick's movie. And you know, nothing is going to live up to it, especially in my eyes, like a simple film bro, like me, like nothing's going to live up to anything that Kubrick ever did. So I was like, yeah, this is cool, but you know, Flanagan's no Stanley Kubrick. So like, what are we going to do there? But I I do, I understand, you know, why it is appreciated the the way that it is.
1: Yeah. It didn't, I, it it felt a little bit like fan service. You know, mm-hmm. in the sense that it was – I think he enjoyed the hell out of making it. Um, mm-hmm. And it's fun, but it's unnecessary. And and even if you're just watching the Kubrick film and then you watch Dr. Sleep, it kind of feels like a disservice to the character of, of Danny almost, that he ends up being killed by the very hotel that he escaped.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So if you're looking at it from that perspective, it's it's only – If you've done both, I think that it it works as well as it does for for me.
0: Also, a terrifying uh, lady in the bathtub scene, like early on in that movie. So not good. But you and McGregor and Rebecca Ferguson are both super cool. So oh my god, yeah, that that's always a plus. They're they're both great. So Doctor Sleep, not a recommendation for either of us, but it is a good transition for us to get into the recommendations uh, section of the episode. Bob, if you're ready, I'm ready to kick off recommendations. I'm almost ready.
1: This is not a recommendation, but I I, I was given as a gift, the shining, the board game this last oh. Christmas and I just played it this last weekend for the first time.
0: So How was it?
1: It's okay. It, it was fun. You play care, <laughs> you play caretakers at the, at the overlook and you've got to, survive the winner basically from the other caretakers over the course of the game. The hotel tries to drive you crazy. And if it, if it does, you end up chasing after the other caretakers with an ax.
0: (laughs) Interesting. So it was fun.
1: It was well worth at least one gameplay. So
0: nice. Uh, But it's
1: not one of my recommendations.
0: (laughs) It's a, it's a pre-recommendation. Right. Bob, you you've always been the caretaker here. That's, <laughs> oh no, we all know that. Um, is, it, is
1: it weird that that sent a little chill down my spine when you said that?
0: <laughs> <laughs> it sent a little chill down my spine too. We're scaring ourselves. But we got to stop. Right, we got to get into recommendations. So, okay. Bob, you know the rules. Yes. I know the rules, listener. If you're new, uh, for each movie that we uh, introduce into the canon. We also do three recommendations for other things to check out. If you like said movie, at least one of those things has to be another film. The other two things can be anything else. It can be more movies. It could be TV shows, comic books, albums, bands, restaurants, literally anything that you can think of. We, we like to get really weird with it. Uh, it just has to be connected to the movie of the week in some way, shape or form. And if you're, if we're recommending movies, we try to avoid things that are already in the Canon and we like to stick to a strict three recommendation policy. All that being said, Bob, let's jump in. What is your first recommendation for the shining?
1: Okay. I I don't actually know if this is in the, I have four, four possibles. Okay. I don't actually know if my first choice is in the Canon or not. So if I start and you're like, uh, that's in the Canon, I'll switch.
0: Okay. To, to something we'll, else. Other. We'll we'll let you know if if it's in or not. But okay, please proceed.
1: All right. So this one, this is one of my favorite movies of all time, and it's in my connection with The Shining in that it, it's a, a critically acclaimed director who came off of a, a film that's uh, that's recognized as one of his best films, but did not do well at the box office, so he turned to horror as a way to to make uh hopefully do something interesting and and maybe make a financially successful movie. So I know Barry Linden did not do great at the mm-hmm. box office for, for Kubrick and then turning to horror. That's my loose connection. So like uh, the my my recommendation is Vampire by Carl Theodore Dreyer. Um.
0: not in the canon. <laughs> not in the so canon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: so it's it's a, a vampire novel. I think it's 1934. Something like that. It was after after Dracula and, and Frankenstein had come out and kind of revealed and and uh wedded an appetite for horror movies. And it's it's a dreamy, moody, spooky as hell. Horror movie by a uh, uh, an artiste of the cinema. It unfortunately mm-hmm. did not do too well because it was regarded as not horrific enough to be a horror movie. Something that some people said about The Shining as well. He ended up not making another film for like ten years after Vampire. But it's it's fantastic. It, the The quote that I always remember from it is that he wanted it to feel like if you if you were in a room and somebody told you that there was a corpse in the next room over, it's like, so you're still in the same room. Nothing has changed, but everything feels different. And that's what he wanted this movie vampire to feel like. And so Ooh. that's, that's my recommendation. My first recommendation. Nice.
0: I think this is on, I think this is already on my watch list. Cool. Um Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, I got it. I got to check that out. Sweet. Good start. All right. I for my first pick, this is a a recommendation that I'm really excited for. This is one of my favorite movies uh of at least from the last couple of years. It's probably it will probably end up being you know, one of my favorite movies ever. It's a movie that sort of to me It feels similar to my relationship with The Shining for many reasons. It's a movie where a lot of moments and images were just sort of like immediately burned into my brain. Uh, um, Another movie that, you know, I I know that this isn't necessarily something that makes a movie great, but another movie that's very quotable, very memeable, looks great on merchandise, on t-shirts, on posters, on things like that. I also think that it's doing a lot of similar things with uh isolation, disorientation, you know, diving into the depths of insanity in really fun and interesting and scary ways. My first recommendation is The Lighthouse. Oh yeah. I I absolutely adore this movie. I if I could I would campaign hard for it to be in the canon, but I don't think that most people connect to the lighthouse the way that I do. I think I'm a weirdo in in that regard, but absolutely one of my favorite movies. And I walked away and from the first time seeing it, I was like, there are many shades of the shining in that movie. So yeah, that's my first pick.
1: That's awesome. And I, you know, I think we need to do an update to the canon anyway, to include films that have come out since we, we first made the list. I think you'd be surprised. I think there's quite a few uh, members that would would happily vote to to yeah. add it in the canon and I this is a movie that I bounced off of my first I felt like it was deeper than I was capable of understanding <laughs> the first time I watched it but I have come to around to uh to the multiple uh joys of the lighthouse since I I just watched the witch rewatched the witch this morning by the way so I, mm-hmm. he's a fantastic filmmaker yeah
0: the witch Great. is in the canon yes yeah
1: so great, great addition! I love that pick. It's awesome.
0: What's your What's your second pick?
1: Uh, oh, and in my, I did a review of the Lighthouse for for uh, Screen Age and and I I mentioned that it feels like a Carl Theodore Dreyer film. As part oh, of oh,
0: so I have to just read the connection. Nice, I love it.
1: All right, so mm. so I have for my second option, I have either a kind of more artsy fartsy pick or a completely cheesy out there sort of one. I think I'm going to go with the completely cheesy out there sort of one. the the connection. I feel like film.
0: Okay. The out there pick it's because sailor couldn't join us. And sailor is, is known for giving outrageous out there picks. You're sort of doing this one in his honor. So that's
1: yes, in honor of Sailor, we're doing this. So, this one actually bounces off of room uh 247, uh 237. Sorry, and the the whole bit about the moon landing being faked just made me think of this film, which is kind of a guilty favorite of mine. Peter Hyams' Capricorn One, which is a uh, 1970s thriller about. A faked Mars landing that uh that goes horribly wrong when the the empty capsule burns up on reentry and uh, they realize that the astronauts are going to have to die,
0: oh man wait that's that sounds wild i've never I've never heard of this movie but oh yeah it's
1: it is completely bonkers i you know a, a it's so full of plot holes it's ridiculous it also has oj simpson uh in one of his first uh oh. film roles i think and so it's it's a problematic film but it's just stupid fun and uh and uh, while the the person who who fakes the the film landing in the movie isn't stanley kubrick it it could have been
0: it could have been <laughs> <laughs> Depending on who you ask, could have been <laughs>
1: yeah. so yeah, oh, that's man. my second pick
0: That's great. I love that. you know, i I had some movies written down that I was going to to pick because I was having a hard time of thinking of like what to recommend for this movie. But your first recommendation made me think that I really should take this opportunity to recommend or really take any opportunity when there's a Stanley Kubrick movie in the Canon, I should take every opportunity to recommend Stanley Kubrick movies that aren't in the Canon. Um, So I've already recommended a few that are not, but because you mentioned it before, Barry Lyndon is an incredible movie. It is like criminally underrated within, you know, the, uh, the filmography of Stanley Kubrick. And I feel like not enough people have seen it. And if you're someone who is just like interested in Kubrick as a filmmaker, Barry Lyndon is like a can't miss. I would argue that it's better than some of the movies that maybe are in the canon or are more well known. So, the The Shining was a follow up to that, but Stanley Kubrick is doing some wild things in Barry Lyndon. So if you're if you're interested in him as a filmmaker, that is definitely a movie that that's worth checking out.
1: That's awesome. That's I I actually. Had my my friend uh, Paul Pelletier just earlier this year was like, I just saw Barry Lyndon, man. You got to see that movie. It's fantastic. The stuff he does with lighting and yeah, so it's definitely yeah. on my list and very cool recommendation.
0: Yeah. It just looks like it, it. It looks like a painting from that era just like came to life. It's that's just right. <laughs> it, it's wild. Um, very cool. And one of the yeah. one
1: of the Kubrick films I haven't seen, so
0: that that's always fun. You know, yeah. you get to see another Kubrick movie. Yeah. What's not to love?
1: Not to love.
0: What's your final pick? Okay,
1: my final pick. I'm, I guess I'm going with video stuff. I had a book, but I won't uh, won't talk about it. So my final pick is a is a riff on the idea of a haunted place, in the sense Ooh. of rather than it being supernaturally haunted, I wanted to honor. The idea of of a place being wrong because of some undefinable but but uh, not necessarily supernatural reason. And this is uh, Nigel Neal's The Stone Tape. Hmm. It was a it's a uh, made for TV television drama nineteen seventy two written by Nigel Neal and directed by Peter Sazdy. And it's about uh, a, a group of people trying to to invent a new recording technology that discovered that the haunting in the house that they're they're using as their their base of operations is actually a kind of a recording of a past event r- recorded by the stones of the uh, of the foundation themselves and. So they they try and and figure out a way to use that ancient, you know, natural phenomena in a in a modern context, and things go horribly awry. It's I don't think it's really well known, uh, no, and, and I've it's never a little bit hard to find. But it, it's definitely Nigel Neal's stuff is always uh, well worth a look, and this is is one of his lesser known films and. And uh, has a very tenuous connection <laughs> to the shine.
0: That sounds um, sounds kind of freaky, but but cool. I like that. Sweet. Some good some good wrecks to add to the watch list, which yeah. I always love. Even though my watch list is now growing to be overwhelmingly large. Yeah, but that's a that's a good problem to have. <laughs> Sweet. So okay, I'm. I'm going with some like pretty conventional movie picks for for my recommendations, but again, they're like all movies that are worth checking out. And if there is a chance that anyone listening has not seen any of these movies, you know, I'm gonna recommend them. So for for my last pick, I'm going with another uh, horror movie that is sort of exploring uh, family dynamics in uh, some pretty wild and interesting ways. It's also a movie that haunted the shit out of me and certainly caused some maybe not sleepless nights, but uh nights where it was very difficult to fall asleep. I, for my last pick, I'm gonna go with Hereditary, <laughs> which oh, yeah. I don't believe is in the canon, but an amazing movie and I wish it didn't freak me out so much because otherwise it would be a movie that I watch like on a pretty regular basis.
1: Yeah. That's a movie that I've only seen once and I'm not sure if I'm going to see it again anytime soon.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's it's
1: difficult in all the best ways.
0: Yeah. Dude. Talk about like just that movie. freaked The the freak out of me. Oh my God. I feel like I can't even blink right now. I'm just getting scared.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Talk about something else
0: yeah but yeah, that's uh, a
1: fantastic oh the family dynamics in that movie <laughs> yeah
0: a, a very different family dynamic but yes. um you know parents can be parents can be a, a pain in the neck sometimes we'll we'll say <laughs> Don't, like you went there <laughs> oh my god uh, all right uh bob before we uh before we cause ourselves and and our listeners uh sleepless nights let's uh Let's run through our recommendations one more time, and then uh, and then say our final goodbyes.
1: Okay, fantastic. So my my first uh, pick was Vampire by Carl Theodore Dreyer. Second pick was Capricorn One by Peter Hyams, and uh, the Stone Tape was my third choice, written by Nigel Neal and directed by Peter Sazdy.
0: Sweet. My recommendations are uh, Robert Eggers' uh, The Lighthouse. Stanley Kubrick's Barry Linden and Ari Oster's hereditary three. Well, I guess not all scary movies, but three movies, Bob, thank you again for, for joining. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. You are the resident horror expert here at screen age wasteland. So, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on for some of these, uh, spooky episodes, you know, starting with, uh, with Suspiria and now ending off the month with, with the shining. We, we hope that everyone has a, an amazing uh, Halloween next week. We hope you've had fun talking horror movies with us. Uh, Bob, I hope you, I hope you've had fun talking horror movies with me. Thank you again oh for, for joining yeah. us.
1: It's fantastic. Thank you for having me on to to talk about your favorite movie. It's a, it's an honor. Thanks a lot. <laughs>
0: um thanks again bob thanks for listening screenagers uh we will catch you next week with the terminator uh it's going to be a fun one so yeah until then stay spooky stay safe and we will see you at the cinemas